As you find your seat, if you look with me in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, in the final chapters, let me tell you something that shook a lot of us at our church in the summer of 2008. In the summer of 2008, a really good student who was also a really good athlete at Edison High School, Luke Gain, had a nosebleed that wouldn't stop. We knew about this because Luke is the oldest son of Pastor Jim and Tomoko Gain, who've been in our church practically their whole lives. Luke is the eldest of five brothers, and I'm sure it was very hard for the entire family, especially these younger brothers who've grown up seeing literally the biggest of them all get so weak. The reason for the nosebleed, they found out a few days later at Children's Hospital of Orange County, was a dread rare disease named aplastic anemia. Aplastic anemia means that your bone marrow is diseased and cannot produce healthy blood. Absent effective treatment, it's a death sentence. But thankfully, as I said, Luke had four brothers. And what was needed to save Luke's life was a bone marrow transplant. Everyone, including a lot of people who weren't family, were tested. A registry was searched, but thankfully, of Luke's four brothers, two were a perfect match for his bone marrow need. Only one was needed, both were willing, of course, and that young boy, who was just 10 years old at the time, prayed. My favorite moment of the whole terrifying episode was the prayer while Luke was in the hospital, his younger brother prayed for him, God bless Luke because he's really sick and bless, bless me because I'm saving him. <laughs> and he did. A bone, marrow, a bone marrow transplant a few weeks later was effective. Saved Luke's life. He went on to be the most inspirational high school football player at Edison. He went on to play college football. This morning, he's a married man with a son of his own. And what made it possible was an exchange. What Luke had in his own strength was insufficient. In fact, it was so ineffective, it was literally killing him. His life hung in the balance. But an exchange, a gift from his little brother saved his life. And as we begin to read Matthew's gospel, that same dynamic is at work. Matthew exchanged lives and histories and also a future was gifted to him from Jesus. Matthew tells you his own story in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, you find out that Matthew, the gospel writer that I'm about to read to you, was one of the worst people in the nation of Israel. He had become a tax collector for the Roman Empire, meaning he had sold himself and his conscience out to the Roman Empire to unjustly collect taxes from an occupying empire. He was enriching himself at the cost of his own countrymen to fund their military occupation, their subjugation under the empire of Rome. It would be like an American in wartime working for the enemy that had conquered and was occupying our shores. That's who Matthew was. But in Matthew chapter 9, we read that Jesus, who is, after all, a friend of sinners, calls him away from the tax collection bench, and Matthew's life from that point forward changes forever. And I already told you the end of his life, he is going to be so transformed by the events of resurrection morning 
that he's never again going to look back with anything but faith. He's going to work through his doubts because he, like you, had a hard time believing that a man could rise from the dead. But when Matthew was utterly convinced of the historic reliability, the actual personal presence of Jesus, whom he knew, whom he watched died back from the dead, it changed his life forever because an exchange was made. And the good news I have for you is that the exchange is offered to us as well. As we begin reading in Matthew 27 and go to the end of Matthew's account, we're really just going to have three stops. I want you to stand with me, if you can bear it, at the side of the cross of Christ in the dirt and watch his final moments. Because something extraordinary is happening there and the most heartbroken, anguish scream in human history comes from the cross of Christ. Then, as is the custom for dead people, Jesus is removed from the cross, and because Jesus is poor, he actually is buried in a gifted grave. One of his disciples was rich and turned his back on his family's grave and lent it momentarily for the dead body of Jesus. Then, as Jesus himself will tell us, as promised, as prophesied, as he had rep repeatedly told anyone and everyone who would listen, you're going to see in a moment how public those claims were, how well known it was that Jesus had claimed in his preaching that he would die and take his own life back in the resurrection. We're going to stand at the empty tomb and we're going to meet Jesus back alive from the dead. And then the final stop, the final stop is right here, right now for us today. Because probably the single greatest thing I wish I could communicate as a pastor to Christians after 200 and some years of Christian history in our country is that this isn't an idea. It's not a concept. He's a person. And if he's actually alive, he can do everything he promised, and he can do more than any of us, including me, are actually yet willing to believe. It happened in history, and it's ongoing today because he's still alive, he's still involved, he's still engaged, and he's still inviting people to become his disciples. So very specifically, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to invite you as his disciple to follow him yourself. Not to please me, who cares? Not to join a church, though you're welcome, and that would be wonderful. It doesn't matter about trading a set of beliefs for another. That's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is you as a person coming to grips with the actual personhood of Jesus and in response to his gift and offer to you to trade your sins, your guilt, your shame for his life, his forgiveness, and his righteousness, becoming his disciple. He makes disciples all over the world in every tribe, nation, and language we've been able to identify. Churches all over the world have already concluded their Easter celebration. On this side of the world, we're just getting started. But today, some people for themselves are going to discover that the story I'm going to give you, though ancient, is absolutely historical and absolutely true. And it's proven not only by history, it's proven by personal experience when people take Jesus at, their, at his word and move their trust from themselves to him. But first, we have to go to the end of Matthew's gospel. Look with me in Matthew 27, please. 
Jesus has endured a mockery of a trial. He's been showered with spittle and abuse. He's been slapped and had his beard torn out. He's been cursed. He's been scourged. He's been nailed to a cross. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon by their reckoning, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. if you're following. A small miracle on the way to the greatest miracle. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, Matthew helpfully translates for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Cruelty and mockery all around the cross of Christ as he dies. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, that's a Roman military officer, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This seems like a small detail, but it's important. Remember this. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite. The next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What's happening here? Why did Jesus scream as he did from the cross? The shout itself is a miracle because the way crucifixion killed most people is they hung suspended from the cross and slowly suffocated. Something horrible is happening to draw out from Jesus this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says it in his heart language. 
The words are coming from his heart, but they did not originate in his mind. They were written first a thousand years earlier by King David in Psalm 22, which gives a startling description of the very reality of what it was like to be crucified, even though crucifixion had not yet been invented. Every detail of the life of Christ is promised and prophesied and written down with detail that cannot be missed if you know where to look in the Old Testament in the Bible that you're holding. A thousand years earlier, seven hundred years earlier, four and five hundred years earlier, it's all there. But this, this seems especially stunning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the moment of Jesus' death, we're told that far from the cross in the temple, a veil was torn from top to bottom. What's happening here? Well, what's happening here is that Jesus is dealing with sin. Sin separates. Sin kills, and Jesus is enduring the separation and dealing with the fatality, the mortality, the lethality of sin by dying himself. Death, if you will, is being defeated by the death of Christ himself. Isaiah had explained it 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, tell us the effect of sin, why it was so costly for Jesus, and it tells us what it does in our own lives to this very moment. Listen to what Isaiah said. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. His ear is not too deaf to hear. Your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. I'd like you to zero in on verse 2. Your iniquities are separating you from your God. Isaiah, in his time, is speaking to people and looking forward to the time of Christ, to people like, all the way forward to people like us to tell us the nature of sin and what it has done with our relationship with God in every relationship. What sin does is destroy relationships. There's not a person, and I'm conscious of it every Sunday, there's not a single Sunday we gather, we don't gather as a church family, where many in our congregation, sometimes me, are heavy-hearted because of broken relationships. If you're heavy-hearted this Easter and the celebration is mixed with a little bit of sorrow for you, if it's a personal matter, I can tell you if the relationship was broken, I'm not talking about it being changed simply by the seasons of life, people drifting apart. If people you care about are far from your life because the relationship has actually been broken, there was sin involved somewhere on one side or both, but someone got selfish, someone got mean, someone got negligent, and relationships ended. On a cosmic level, from the point of view of God, the trouble with, that we have with a holy God who made us and the world and everything in it is not that He is unable to save us, not that He is unwilling to listen to us, but our sins have separated us from Him. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. Six chapters earlier, Isaiah goes into even greater detail specifically regarding the crucifixion of Jesus by explaining it to us like this, Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. Isaiah says, but he, Jesus, Messiah, the Savior, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Here's the human condition. Here's your condition. 
Here's mine. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. There's the exchange. Jesus, in other words, at the cross, took the punishment that our sins deserve. The veil is being torn far from the cross of Christ in the temple to signify to those people who saw a veil torn in the, that separated the holy place from the holiest places that access to God has now been opened, that the separation has been defeated, that the distance between sinful people and a holy God has been bridged by the death of the Son of God. And I've often wondered, though the Bible doesn't tell us what must have happened inside the temple. I know this, temple worship continued. And what that means is that religious people must have stitched the veil up or replaced it. And symbolically told worshipers that the barrier remains. I have good news for you. The barrier of your sin between you and a holy God was torn down by the death of God, of God's own Son. The truth of the matter is none of us take sin very seriously. The severity of the cross of Christ is a testimony to how seriously God takes sin. It's the cur most curious thing in the world that people are so accustomed to living affected by sin, influenced by sin, guarding themselves against the sin of others. And when it comes time to deal with our own sinfulness, which in our quiet moments our conscience tells us is always never a step from us, we downplay it and minimize it and push it aside. God has told us not to lie, and we do. God has told us to have pure eyes, and we lust. God has told us to be content with what we have, and we covet instead. We're so accustomed to it that it doesn't seem very serious to us until somebody sins against us. Then, then we notice. Jesus at the cross is dealing with the severity and the penalty for my sins and yours, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. It's all being paid for right there. The righteousness of Christ is being offered in place of your own. Before we move to the tomb, let me simply ask you this. Do you enjoy being around self-righteous people? That was a tepid response, but I think the answer was no. If the answer was tepid, it's because it's a dumb question. Nobody enjoys being around self-righteous people. It's one reason a lot of people don't like to come to church. They perceive, sometimes correctly, that churches can be filled with self-righteous people. When you look at the death of Jesus on the cross, trading his holy life for the life of sinners, he puts you at a very uncomfortable crossroads. He tells you that access to God has been opened by his death. And he makes you choose between his righteousness and your own. Everyone will go into eternity having made one of those two choices. At the end of your life, when you answer to the God who made you, you will either stand with your own righteousness and hope that it will be good enough, 
or you will be clothed instead with the righteousness that was exchanged for yours at the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. Really, the question is as simple as that. Will you choose the righteousness of Jesus or the righteousness of your own deeds? And the reason people don't feel the weight of their own distance from God is because we make a very foolish choice. We compare ourselves with one another. And that's a losing game. Because if you let me choose the room, I can always be the best guy in the room. But you won't answer in comparison to others. You will answer to God for yourself. And the beauty of the gift of Easter is that Jesus was born a human being. The Son of God became a man to face all of your weaknesses, all of your frailties, all of your temptations without sin and trade his life for yours. That is the meaning of his death, that he took the punishment that my sins and yours deserve. And here's our second stop, the tomb. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. I guess so. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Here's the good news of Easter. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him, but Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. There's trouble back at the tomb. Look. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Do you see a problem with that story? Did you pick up on the flaw in the reasoning? It's subtle, but it's there. Let me read it to you again. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Do you see it now? How did they know who came and who did what if they were asleep? If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What's happening at the tomb? Well, an exchange is being made as well at the tomb. Jesus said to women, he is not here. He has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. You may have noticed how many names are in this story. Joseph of Arimathea, two different Marys, the women sitting opposite the tomb watching the burial of Jesus, the disciples having fled for their lives. Pilate. Why are these names in the story? Because this is exactly how it happened. 
Let me explain to you one of the most important pieces of evidence for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually the women. If you were making up a story, this is not a very persuasive story in the first century because first century women in this culture are not allowed to give witness to anything. The culture is so misogynistic, so contrary to women, that their word is literally not good in a court of law. What they say that happened is meaningless in terms of legal standing. And this is a fun little detail. Did you notice the two women who go to the tomb are both named Mary? One of the reasons that it's hard to untangle the resurrection appearances of Jesus, which were many and extended for over a month at one point, the Bible says, at over 500 people at once, is because the people are so obscure and the people that are named sometimes have the same name. Why is it this way? Because that's the way it happened. And sometimes when you're recording history, you don't have the convenience of making up characters with different names and very different characteristics. The least credible witnesses in that culture, both of them happen to be named Mary, are those who go to the disciples, the frightened disciples. Not a good day, not a good look for them. Jesus has risen just as he promised. It's all true, boys. Jesus said to the women, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I want you to step back in history with me at the tomb and consider this. Everything that Jesus said and did has always been open for public inspection, beginning in his own lifetime. His disciples were named. Their stories were told. Sometimes their stories are shameful and embarrassing and sad. Why did it happen that? Why is it written that way? Because that's the way it happened. Skeptics from the first century to the present day have examined with an open, humble heart the claims of Christ and found him to be true and credible and very much alive. And the reason he's done this is because at the cross he paid for sin, he's now rising from the dead to give his disciples then and now his own life. In John 14, verse 19, Jesus promised this, in a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live too. That's the promise. That last sentence is for you. Because I live, you will live too. In other words, our second stop tells us this. Jesus rose from the dead so that we could enjoy eternal life. And I don't mean your life as you experience it now going on forever. I'm talking about eternal life, the life that God always intended before sin came into the world and ruined everything. This is a little beyond the scope of the Easter story and its historical details, but it's something to consider and something to look forward to if you will actually trust Christ with your life. You've never fully experienced life the way God first made it. In this world, you're always one phone call away from tragedy. In this world, every doctor's visit makes us at least just a little bit anxious because a diagnosis could be given in the next few minutes. In this world, we have to tell our kids, we hug them before they, get, they go out the door, and we say things like this, be safe, be careful, have a good flight. I hope you're well. Why is that? 
because this world is glorious, because God made it and fallen, because sin entered into it. Sin has stained and ruined every relationship we've ever been part of. Even our best relationships can be difficult at times. Even the sweetest of moments we know in this life must end because things change, people die. People get selfish, people get self-involved, people are no longer willing to love. We live in a world that we're very, very accustomed to because it's the only one we've ever known. We've ever known, but a much better world awaits because Jesus rose from the dead so that we could enjoy eternal life. And then you may have noticed Jesus is continually is saying to these women, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. I want you to I want to show you in closing what he wanted with them. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some, what's it say there? Doubted. Now why would that be? Because they can't believe they're seeing a man they saw die back alive. I think Matthew records that because that was the experience of his own heart. I'm not sure how else he might have known that other, other people had doubts in their heart. These men lived a long time ago. They were not stupid. There's sometimes a story that crops up that the ancients were easily deceived. May I suggest to you that the ancients knew better than we do what death actually is? They were not easily duped. They're worshiping and doubting all at the same time. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's where I wrap up and here's perhaps where your story with Jesus begins. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said... For today, he told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what I'm doing now. I'm not on commission. And I'm not a persuader. I'm more of a reporter. I am here to report to you that Jesus paid the penalty for sin and took his own life back with the authority of God himself, just as Scripture and he personally promised. And today he is willing and able to forgive your sins, turn to you with the full love of God himself and welcome you into his family as his follower. Jesus now is calling people to turn and follow him. Turn from what? From themselves. From their own self-improvement efforts. From their own idea that they can postpone what matters most. Consider this and I'm done most people make more preparations for a two-week summer vacation than they make for the rest of their eternal life. We give more thought to what we will do this summer than what will happen to us a moment after we draw our last breath. That's why Jesus came, because Jesus knows full well the weight and the penalty of sin. And he stood in your place and took the punishment that my sin and your sin deserved and took his life back to give it to you, to exchange his life yours, to give you his life so that you could have real life. Jesus said in John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Please zero in on that last sentence. 
everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Here's His promise to you. I will raise you up on the last day. That's why He went to the cross. That's why He lay in the tomb. That's why He rose again on a Sunday morning so that you could have eternal life. And from just one of His normal disciples. My invitation to you is to make Jesus your Lord, your Savior, your forgiver, your life, and start following yourself. Let's pray together. Friends, the choice is simple. Will we choose our righteousness or the righteousness of Christ? That's all. That's it. Will you agree this morning that your, sep your sins separate you from God and will you trust Jesus to exchange his righteous life for yours? It's not a matter of you improving. It's not a matter of you getting better. It's a matter of you turning away from whatever you've been doing to save yourself and improve yourself morally, righteously, spiritually. It's a matter of giving up on yourself and beginning to trust him. will you? My invitation to you, if you will, is that you will turn to God in prayer right now and with a humble, open heart, tell Jesus that you believe him. Tell him that you've seen in scripture his death, his resurrection. You've heard his promise of eternal life and you believe him as best you can. You may still have questions. You may still have doubts. You heard Matthew's own doubts. They're normal. But if you will move your personal trust from yourself and put your personal trust in Jesus, here's his promise. I will raise him up. I will raise her up on the last day. Will you trust him this morning? I'm inviting you to pray, if you will, and tell him so.